All right, guys, we are doing this. I'm super excited to have this bonus episode drop. And Paul and I have been talking about it for a few weeks now. So it's finally here. Paul, welcome back to the show. How's it going? Yeah, it's going good, Odette. It's really good to be here with you. Good to see you. Good to hear your voice. And it's good to be here with the audience of Recovery Elevator. I have missed you guys so much. Yeah, we do get comments messages, reviews, stating how much people miss you. So I love reminding people that you're still out here. You're still creating content. You're still making YouTube videos and dropping in on our episodes. And your audiobook is also something that people can listen to whenever they miss your voice, right? Where can we find that? Yeah, that's on Audible. That's on Amazon. But Odette, there's another part of that review. Yeah, we miss Paul, but there's always a second part that says, but... We love Odette so much. And Odette, I want to say thank you for giving me a very precious gift at the end of 2020 and 2021 is I get to tune in. I mean, listeners, check this out for a second. I'm on the same journey that Odette is on, and that is really inner wholeness, but that starts when we ditch the booze. Um, But there's this gift that you've given me is I can tune in on a Monday and listen to the Recovery Elevator past. So many nuggets, so many value bombs, and so much inspiration from the people you interview. Uh, and listeners, there's some times where, you know, as the role I'm in, I, I, I listen and I write down notes and give, give Odette feedback. But most of the time, within a minute or two of the episode, I forget about that role. And I'm listening as a listener. And there's so much value from that, Odette. So I want to say thank you for that tremendous gift. And you've given me a, a break. And I've been able to focus on other things with Recovery Elevator, such as such as courses and other things that I'm going to talk about. And one of the questions that uh, that a listener asked us today, and I'm excited to cover those. So, Adet, big thank you. And I'm excited to be here with you guys because I I love this material. I love these topics. Um, I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, I'm really happy you're here. And I'm excited that we get to address some of the questions that listeners have for both of us. Some are directed to you, some are directed to me, and some of them are questions that we can both answer since we do have uh, like that shared mission that you said of inner wholeness, but we have different paths and different lives. So I'm excited that we get to share a little bit more about ourselves with the audience. And we're going to get going, guys, because we got a good amount of questions and we want to make sure that we cover as many as possible during this bonus episode. So Pablo, listo? Oh, dead. Vamanos. Let's do this. Let's do this. You're up first. What are you going to ask? All right. Okay. We're going to alternate reading the questions. And since this one is directed towards Ordet, here I go. Number one, I still find it difficult that my husband drinks every day. I don't know why it makes me feel angry inside, but I do all the time when he drinks. How can I approach this Miss Odette? This is a very loaded question. Thank you, brave listener who wrote us to ask this. And it is hard. I want to acknowledge that I asked this exact same question to my therapist multiple times and I did not really like her answer, but I found a lot of value in it. You know, she really encouraged me to work on myself and stay on my lane. Obviously, when we're in a relationship, whatever our partner is doing affects us directly. But I found that the change that I was looking for came from actually removing the focus from somebody else, from your husband, and to putting that focus on what I needed to improve about myself. Because the more I healed myself, the more I learned how to assert assert myself and how to set boundaries with other people, including with your significant other. And that's something that I didn't know how to do. So instead of obsessing over how badly someone else is doing in our lives, the suggested advice is to kind of shift gears and focus on yourself, which is a lot of the times harder. Therapy really helps. I'm a big proponent of it. So it's a good start if you have that option available to you. Thanks for your question. Yeah, great answer, Odette. And it sounds like you're saying pull your energies back to yourself. I love that. And listeners, we've got about 24 questions. And so we're going to loosely organically answer these questions. But we're also going to kind of be a rapid fire, do a rapid fire format as well, just so we can get through all of them. And it's not going to be a five hour episode. All right. Number two, Odette, you're up. 
Number two, somebody asked, what do you suggest I do when friends and family seem uncomfortable around me when I say I don't drink? They say stuff like bloody hell, you only live once, may as well drink. What do you say to that, Paul? Yeah, okay. I would have to say that that great question is when you get that type of pushback, you can really get started with your 2.0 version of your life right now. This is an incredible opportunity, right? You've been given several opportunities to set those boundaries, to really push past those people-pleasing tendencies, and you're going to start creating space for your new life. And another thing I want to say with this is give it time. They are watching, right? There's a reason on the airplanes they say put the oxygen mask on yourself first. I always question that. I'm like, wait a second. You want to put it on the toddler or your child first, but that's not how it works. And one of my favorite episodes is episode 204 with one of my best friends named Dusty. He quit drinking, and within a matter of a year, I think three or four other people in his family quit drinking. So sure, they're going to give you that narrative, that pushback, but they are watching, and they are energetically following your footsteps. And the second part of this is it doesn't really mean that they aren't supportive. You got to keep in mind, they're also on their own journey as well. Yeah. Okay, next question, Odette, here we go. And for some of these questions, she might answer, I might answer, and we both might answer. So, okay, number three, what are the future plans for RE and what is in the works? Odette, I'll field this one. Is that cool? Yeah, that's cool. And I just, you're going to mention something that I'm excited about, which is retreats. But what do you have to say? What's what's exciting about RE in the next couple of years and in the next couple of months? Okay, well, we want to talk about the podcast first. Number one, I've missed you guys. I don't want to give too much information about the plans. We're currently in season two. Um, I do want to come back in some sort of capacity. Again, not sure how that's going to look. Uh, number two is there's so much talent in Cafe RE in this community. We want to get more voices on the podcast. And of course, when COVID settles down, there will be more retreats and there's going to be three types. Number one, retreats, like the one we're doing in Montana. It's more of a rustic. It's up in the mountains, you know, in nature setting. And number two, there'll be more hotel events. That's where we rent out conference space, things like that. Number three, alcohol-free travel. Um, and I'm also, I've been actively looking for retreat centers. I've visited a couple locations in Costa Rica. There's a spot in Peru and way down the road, there's the rat park experiment, right? This is the Bruce Alexander did this in the seventies. It says your environment is what creates the addiction. This is something way down the road on my bucket list in life. I want to try this out in real life. This would, this would entail, you know, getting several acres of property and, and creating an environment where the alcohol is no longer needed. This would be like an in-person community. So that's kind of the what's that's down the pipeline for me. What do you got, Odette? I'm just very excited for everything that's happening. And more importantly, because I do help with the planning of events and retreats, I'm just really excited to get those back online and to have more in-person connections with all of you. So I'm excited. Stay tuned for all of the updates. Real quick, our first event is August 18th through the 22nd in Bozeman, Montana. Registration opens March 1st. Yes. So for Cafe Area members, right? For Cafe Area members, March 1st. And I can't wait to see some of you there. Paul and I will both be there. And there will also be ice cream. Just saying. Next question says, how did you guys best handle your early days of an alcohol-free life? And how do you handle your days today? So kind of like now and then, early recovery and now. For sure. Odette, you want to go first on this one? Yeah, I feel like I've definitely toyed around with different tools, but I do have my consistent ones that I keep coming back to. And that for me personally, they just really do the trick and help. And I obviously have good days and I have dip days as I like calling them. But I try to be consistent with moving my body. I really notice how changing my body changes my mental state. I still go to therapy. Sometimes I go more, sometimes I go less. Staying connected. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. So I try to attend online meetings, online webinars and have safe independent meetups. We went for a nice little hike a couple of weeks ago with some RE members and that really energized me. Those things just work no matter where I'm at in my sobriety, just staying connected with the community and staying connected with myself. What about you, Paul? Yeah, Dad, I can only speak for myself on this one, but quitting drinking was the most difficult thing I've ever done in my entire life, hands down, without a doubt. Flip side of that, the most rewarding 
thing I've ever done. It's opened up the most doors, created the most pathways to a healthier new future uh, for me. So for the first 30 days and, and to initiate the process, it's going to take a Herculean effort, right? It's going to take a complete transformation of what you did before. So for my first month, my first week, I actually left the city of Bozeman. I knew there was too many triggers, too many, too many poles, too many calls. And I did a hiking trail up Spanish Creek Canyon for 30 straight days. I walked to this waterfall and sometimes I just sat and I looked at the clock spin, right? And said, I'm not going back into town until the sun goes. So for the first, uh, those first week, the first two weeks, first 30 days, it's going to take a tremendous effort of doing something differently. After that, where we at right now, it's more of the interchange, right? So it's relying less on changing the external environment. And that's where the thinking mind wants to go. When we feel that inner discomfort, it's almost like it's a go-to, oh shit, I need to change this on my calendar. Maybe I need to switch jobs. Or maybe I need to change who I hang out with. But now it's like I immediately go inside and I sit, right? And I try to build that internal connection knowing that the external connection will be reflected in only a matter of time. Yeah. Great question. I love that one. Uh, let's go to the next one. All right. If you could trade your life now for being able to magically drink like a normal person, would you? Oh, this one's loaded. I love it, though. <laughs> Great question. How about you, Odette? You're up. My answer was simple. No, señor. Uh, I like that. And no, señor. No, señor. No, señor. I say it right? Yeah, you did. Sí que no. Ah, que no. All right. With this one, um, of course, this is a loaded question. We're both like, oh, yes, yes. Next question. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would go over well. And I'm going to be honest with this. Yeah, for the first year or two, for sure, there were thoughts of that. For the first year, it was like a why me. It was, it was the victim role. Um, you know, where's my Harry Potter wand? Where's my magic globe? Give me the magic eight ball to shake and, and take me back in that DeLorean time machine that I couldn't find on eBay because I wanted to go back to the time when I could drink normally. And, and those thoughts were there heavily for the first year. And for the second year, they were there as well. But now um, it is unequivocally a no senor, just like Odette had said, for several reasons. Number one, I'm not in the I'm not in the same I'm not in the right room anymore. There's such a dip in consciousness that takes place when you walk into an environment where people are drinking a lot of alcohol. It's not fun to be in there. My energy is literally sucked out of me. And once I realized that, yeah, it was so much energy was was freed. And the life that I have now there's there's really no space like the thought of drinking and the thought of being in those 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 same environments it's just it doesn't interest me anymore so yeah i'm gonna go with a uh, hell no senor on that one hell no senor Ooh, you're up. and i love what you said there you know <laughs> we outgrow those those rooms you're in the wrong room now so it's almost like it's just an illusion i love that Next question says, I hear in AA all of the time that those that don't go to meetings regularly are sure to go back out to drink again. So the person is asking, what do you do to stay connected and to find community if you don't subscribe to programs like AA? Where do you find that community support? You want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. I mean, I do think and you've mentioned it on plenty of episodes of the show that the opposite of addiction is connection. So I do love that the question already includes where do I find this because I know I need it. You know, the person that is asking this already knows that they will need to fill in this community support piece of the cake, basically. And I feel like we live in a time where outside of it being COVID and us not being able to gather in person as much, there's no better time to be sober. I feel like there are sober groups everywhere. There are virtual meetings with multiple groups, including us, but there are other groups that I know that exist. There are online sober curious groups. There are courses, there are books, there's a ton of Quitlet books. So there's, there's a lot. And I found my people here in Recovery Elevator. Now I work with Recovery Elevator, but I came to find my community and my chosen family in our group. And I also find that community support with just friends, not necessarily sober friends, but friends who are also working on growing their self-awareness and almost have this mindset of, I'm always learning about myself and I'm always wanting to learn and be better and just push myself outside of my comfort zone. So I've grown friends that really kind of align with that path. And that's where I find my support. What about you, Paul? Nailed it, Odette. Okay, I'm going to answer. There's two parts to this. The first part, I hear an AA all the time. 
those who don't go to meetings are sure to go back out and drink. Okay, there's infinite ways to ditch the booze. And I interviewed a guy named Nate, episode seven, eight, or nine, who he's been to one AA meeting. He's my really good friend. I think two AA meetings, and he just hit 10 years alcohol-free, right? Same thing with my buddy Dusty, who I mentioned earlier. I think we've been, he's been to two or three meetings, right? I've met people all the time who have ditched the booze, and AA is not part of their journey. Now, for the second part of this question, for those who don't subscribe to a community-based recovery, okay, with that, I feel like I am going to take a stance on that, is that is something that I do not think will yield fruit down the road, is we are social animals. We are supposed to be around people. We are communal-based And I do think that the community is absolutely key and vital to this. And I'm not too sure, you know, of a non-community-based recovery, how well that's going to work out in the long run. Um, You you know, we are social animals. And if we were supposed to be individual animals, we would be given the tools. Like, let's look at a jaguar for a second, right? It's got camouflage and it's got really sharp claws and it can live on its own. It can fend for itself solo. But human beings, not so much. We are meant to be uh, in a pack. We are herd animals. So... You know, and I know there's another part like what support outside of podcasts and books today you know, to feel that community support. There's a ton of stuff out there, but at the end of the day, it all leads to community and connection. So that's my answer on that one. I'm going to read this next question. Odette is number seven. And actually, before we do that, Odette, I want to ask you a question. How many pounds or kilograms of, uh, of, of dried mango with salt, chili, limon do you think you have a week? Probably five pounds a week. <laughs> she loves her Trader Joe's dried mango with chili. Every meeting we have, there's a bag in the background. I love it. It is my COVID snack of choice. Who am I kidding? It's just my snack of choice, no matter what's going on in the world. It's just, it's too good. All right. Question number seven. It says, I'm in my second year of sobriety. I feel like the first year was a lot of filling my toolbox and learning how to survive without alcohol. When in your journey did you really start to thrive and live your best life? What steps did you take to embrace the new you and live out loud? Okay, I'll go first on this one. So nothing and absolutely nothing was thriving with me when I was drinking. And there was parts of my life that began to thrive nearly immediately when I quit drinking. And we often think this is an all or one. You're either thriving or you're not. But there are, there are areas of your life that can thrive when other areas of your life are not thriving. You know, debt has a beautiful word with this that she sprinkles in every single podcast. It's called coexist, right? So there were things when I quit drinking physically, our, I started thriving within seven days. Within 14 days, I physically came back online. I ran 23-mile mountain race at like year two away from alcohol. My businesses, I'm an entrepreneur and I love doing that stuff. Those things began to thrive within a couple months away from alcohol. But really the most important things for me to thrive took some more time and that was a spiritual component in my life which uh, which I could barely spell spirituality when I first quit drinking. And it wasn't really my choice to go down that route but that happened at a later time in my life. And now, you know, we have good days and bad days. We both do on this podcast, right? But I'm so much more tethered. And so that's a part of my life that is thriving right now where it can be a complete shitstorm or, or full on, you know, rainstorm or a hurricane outside. But internally, I'm more tethered, right? I can weather those storms emotionally. How about you, Odette? I think this is a great question. It got me thinking about another question <laughs> that I want to include in my answer and is, I think my definition of what thriving in my life even means has really changed from year one to year two of sobriety. And it goes back to what you said, Paul, earlier about going within now. Maybe Odette before sobriety or in early sobriety thought that thriving would be, you know, amazing job, looks amazing, feels amazing, you know, the perfect Instagram profile. And now I've realized that thriving to me means peace within myself, knowing myself, and that understanding, you you got the word before I did, understanding this reality that things coexist. Sometimes when I'm thriving, it's actually when I'm having a really shitty day because maybe I'm thriving when I'm growing and getting to know myself better and embracing parts of myself that I didn't want to. When I'm feeling the yuck and like eating the shit sandwich, In my mind now, that's sometimes thriving. So I think there's like a lot of perception that goes into this question, but I feel like 
I still don't know if I'm woohoo thriving, like according to what people think is thriving, because I feel like there's been a lot of growing pains. And listeners, Paul and I have conversations offline where sometimes we're both like, okay, I'm done. Like, I don't want anything hard thrown at me in the next week, please. Like, who can I ask for a pass on this week? Because, you know, these growing pains are called growing pains for a reason, but I think that's part of thriving. So I hope this answered the question. Yeah, and I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go back in this one for a second. Is now I'm gonna say non-thrive and thrive. When a, when a moment of non-thrive shows up, and this is another word for that, is called chaos. I now know 100% that is always followed by order or thrive. So when those non-thrive life moments show up, it's I welcome them and say, all right, that means there will be a higher level of order or a higher level of thrive shortly after. There's another phrase: this too shall pass. Ying the yang. There we go. You need them both. You really do. You really do. So thank you for that, Paul. Okay, Paul. So the next question, I'm going to hand it off to you because you have experience in this. And it says, do you think there is a risk of a substance leading me back to alcohol? Have your own experiences or for that matter, any research on the potential benefits of psychedelics informed you in any way about this doubt that I have in my mind. So the question is, do you think other psychedelic drugs can lead me back to alcohol? Go, Paul. You, wow, love this question. Okay. In 2011, the British government hired a Dr. David Nutt to put a harm score on 20-year-olds, and he actually was relieved of his position when he came back to the British government and said, alcohol is number one by far the most addictive drug and, and causes the most devastating effects on a society. What came in at number 20, and this is well past coffee, um, coffee was like 13 or 14, I think, a anyways, but the number 20 was magic mushrooms, this is psilocybin, which is in, currently in a phase three of FDA testing, and I think in a couple of years in America, you should be able to book a, a psilocybin-guided uh, th th therapy session, right? And I do have experience with ayahuasca and a little bit with psilocybin, there's one thing that I can tell you is they are non-addictive. In fact, after every session that I have, I tell myself, wow, I will be perfectly fine if I never do that again. And it also piggybacks off the last question that we had is what these things can do, they can create so much chaos in the brain. For example, if, if, it's, a, if it's a four to five hour psilocybin session with a therapist, there's so much chaos in the brain and that is extremely uncomfortable. But when after that chaos settles, it always falls into order. But during the process, uh, it is extremely uncomfortable. But a lot of these therapies are guided or geared towards those who are struggling with mental health issues such as anxiety, depression, and addiction. And I think we are, are going to see several paradigms in the recovery world shift if not completely collapse. And, and these are natural plant medicines that are, that are found everywhere. And, um, you know, I, I, do, I don't believe in a, a magic bullet or a quick fix or a pill. And I, and I still would don't feel these are those, right? Because you're still doing six hours of intense, intense inner work to find that calm after the chaos. But again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a stance on this and say, no, some of these in the right set and setting, having a psychedelic experience lead you back to alcohol, it's not in my experience. And it's not in my experience. Have I heard a story of this? And I've been in this area for, for a little bit of time now. So great question. And I hope that helps. Okay, next question. Number nine, what were your best strategies to avoid or minimize the tendency to romanticize the days of your, as in back when you were drinking in early days of sobriety? You want to go first on this one? Yeah, I'll go first. And mine is something that I'm really grateful to hear people that we interview mention as one of their tools. And it's one of my favorite tools. Very simple tool is just play the tape forward. And I just have to and still have to not just in early sobriety when I romanticize a drink, continue to give myself this little pep talk that everything that I have now is because I chose this path. And if I get off this path, everything will be gone. Like this romanticizing is just an illusion, at least for me, speaking for myself. Now that I'm two plus years in on this journey, I still don't think I got this. And then on days when I do, that's what I have to remember, that if I'm looking at a family, all drinking wine, teenage 
like not teenage like young adults kids which i have kids so young adults with their parents all enjoying a glass of wine i know that if i were to partake in that and if that's the what i romanticize my family to be i would just be ejected from that situation immediately i may be still physically there but mentally i would just not be there i would check out immediately so i would have to give up what i want for that drink and i keep that at the forefront of my mind all the time and that just really does help me that it's just an illusion, or at least for me. What about you, Paul? Oh, Dad, I love you. you said that. Give up what I want for that drink. That's a complete deviation for where you see your future version 2.0 Odette going. I love how you said that. First off, there's this thing called the ism, incredible short memory. And there's another word for that called euphoric recall. This is um, why women have a second or third or Mormon moms have eight babies, right? We don't quite recall accurately of how shitty it was towards the end of our drinking. And it's okay to have these feelings of romanticizing, guys. Football used to be a huge part of my life. And I coached high school football where I played football this last fall. It was an incredible experience. And there were some days where I said, man, I wish I could put on the shoulder pads and the cleats and play football again. Then I sat there for a second and said, wait a second. A, you get your ass kicked. Football is a painful sport. But B, there was a lot of anxiety tied up with that, a lot of work. Um, And then when I sat with it and kind of like you said with play the tape forward, it was a nope, I'm good. I'd rather be on this side of the equation. So be aware of it, that it's happening and let it happen. It's okay. The mind has 60 to 70,000 thoughts per day. Most of them are wrong. So when you do have these romanticizing thoughts about it, start to question those thoughts and say, wait a second, was it really that good? Yeah, great answer of that. Did you read the last question or do you want me to read this question? I got this question. Oh, it's actually, it's dire- oh, you got it. All yeah, right. it's directed to you. So I am gonna, I am gonna go ahead and read it. The question says, I seem to have a problem sometimes with lack of structure or uh, just a regiment. Days when I work or I have commitments, it seems like I don't have so many thoughts in my head because I'm pretty focused on the task at hand. Less thoughts equal less anxiety for me. So, Paul, you've been doing some traveling and doing a bunch of perhaps non-structured things. Do you struggle now or did you in the past with not having structure? And if so, what tools did you use to navigate that? And I love this question because we do sometimes prescribe structure in early sobriety as a way to help. So what would you have to say to this? Yeah, great question. And we, we do prescribe that, like like prescribe, right? And the courses that we do, one of the classes on routine and structure, we, we want people to create those healthy routines in the morning and healthy routines before they go to bed at the evening. And I like this question, and, and I'm glad the, the, the listener is recognizing that the days with that structure are easier to get through. Um, and I'm a firm advocate. You can't think yourself out of a drinking problem, but you can view these these patterns and say, wait a second, I forgot structure, I, I drink less. So for sure, double down on that. And even on the days where you're not working, try to find structure. And this is the reason why when I'm traveling, and I do experience this, it's gonna be challenging at times, where I, why I took Spanish class in Oaxaca, Mexico. Like I lived in Spain for three years. I'm not f- totally fluent in it, but yeah, like I could get by just fine without taking classes, but this is a big reason why I do it. Sometimes I take city tours, even though I live in the city. I go to AA meetings in these other these other countries to build in that structure, to build in that routine. And when, uh, when I'm not traveling, um, th- th- this is the cool thing we can do in a life without alcohol is we can find new routine. I, I volunteered for a theater group. This is like two years ago yeah, just to try new things. But it was that structure, that routine that I try to build in my life as well. And we can learn a new skill at the same time, like take a weekly guitar class, a weekly singing class and things like that. Love the question. Double down on that routine. All right. Here we go. Number 11. I would love to hear Odette speak on how alcohol abuse works with eating disorder recovery. The sobriety world is very diet culture oriented and fat phobic. Any guidance on fighting the voice or needing to restrict, manage weight, and it's okay to eat? Great question. I get a lot of listeners message me about eating disorder issues as well. And on episode 312, I actually talk about why I get so many messages. It is not not a coincidence. There is data, there are numbers that show the relationship between alcohol abuse and eating disorders. So if you haven't listened to episode 312, please do because I do go more into detail. But what I always just honestly recommend, and it is what worked for me, was 
work with a therapist or someone that specializes in eating disorder recovery, not just a therapist, but somebody that knows and has this background because the brain works in a really funky way when you struggle with an eating disorder. And it's very specific. And for me, what really helped with those specific things that you were asking about restricting, managing weight loss mentality was also having an eating disorder nutritionist for a certain amount of time because I didn't trust my brain. I didn't trust my thoughts. I knew exactly how many calories everything had. I knew exactly what to eat, when to eat it. So I had to take somebody else's hand and do what they told me to do for a period of time until I was able to trust my body and trust myself. And I do want to address that I'm grateful for my body, extremely grateful. And this is a new gratitude that I found in my body, especially after having kids and now I know like this is my vehicle but that doesn't mean that I don't have bad body image days you know I still have bad body image days I don't love my body every day but I stay rooted in this gratitude that I'm going to do what's best for my body so find some help is the best advice that I can give we are immersed in a lot of marketing and narratives just like with alcohol that sell us into these messages of diet and what should we eat what we shouldn't eat if you can distance yourself a little bit from these things perhaps social media accounts that trigger you or make you feel ugly make you feel fat you know there's nothing wrong with creating a little buffer while you're working on healing yourself because that's not going to go anywhere and it's good to protect your energy because there's a lot of this out there and it is totally okay to eat. Please connect with me if you want more resources or social media accounts that are actually doing the opposite of this and promoting the opposite of fat phobia and are promoting happy at every size, positive body image. Just reach out to me. I'm always really happy to talk about this. Thanks, Paul. Okay, next question. No, you want, oh, that's right. You're up. Yeah, I'll go with the next one. How many days in a row have you worn your favorite gray sweater? Oh, let me check the uh, the sheet. That's not on there. That was a uh, that was a curveball, but I will answer. Okay, I just got off COVID. I'm in day like 18 right now, and I did about 17 days straight. And uh, when we started this interview, I was wearing something different, and we had to take a do a couple takes. And I said, "Hang on, Odette, I know what's going on here." Got up, put on my sweater, and we're rocking and rolling. So uh, we're gonna go 17 and a half days. 17 yeah. and a half days, listeners. I'm going to take a snapshot photo of our Skype conversation right now. Post a photo of Paul in his sweater the day that the episode do dropped. It. Woo! Okay, ready, Paul? We'll do it. Take it right now, right? Okay, ready? One, two, yeah. three. Yeah. <laughs> That's what's up. All right, for All reals. Right. Next question says. How do you not think about drinking while abstaining? I've had plenty of alcohol-free days in the last few years, but on some of those days, I was sometimes consumed with thoughts of drinking. So the drinking was obviously gone, but what about the thinking? Have the thoughts around alcohol gone away from you too? Go, Pablo. All right. Okay. Every single song that's ever been written is about love. Sometimes the lyrics will give you a different idea, but everything's about love, right? And then a good majority of those songs are written about how hard it is to say goodbye to love, right? Um, I think it's the country music genre, in fact. And so it's recognizing that saying goodbye to something is really difficult. And in our courses, one of our assignments is a Dear John letter where we formally say goodbye. We say adios. We grieve it. You can burn that letter. You can fly it off a cliff, turn it into a paper airplane. You can save it. You can do whatever you want. But it's important to recognize that it's hard to say goodbye. And, you know, when I was six years old, I had a pet frog that died and I was devastated, Odette, like devastated at the point my mom was like, we might we might have a problem here. But eventually what happened, you know, a month later, I was still still devastated. But four years later, just kidding, I got over a little quicker than that. But the point I'm trying to make here is give it time to spend, I would say, is neurons that no longer fire together, no longer wire together. So let time be the ultimate healer. And the further away you get away from alcohol, you'll begin to think about it less and your new life will emerge. And I can honestly tell you, this is good news for you listeners. At over six years away from alcohol, it's a non-issue. I don't even think about it. Of course, I've got other issues in my life that I need to address, but I don't think about it anymore. Thank you, Paul. I wanted to just wrap up the question by saying something that I heard recently and I thought fits in with this question. And it's, you know, Sometimes you have some sort of body ache and you're you're taking medication, you're going to your chiropractor and it's getting better over time. And all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, oh, my back pain is gone. 
And it's not that it happened from one day to the next. There was just this natural progression. And all of a sudden you were like, oh, that back pain isn't even there anymore. It's kind of the same with the thoughts around alcohol. So yes, give it time. I love that advice. And it does get better. So stay the course. Okay, number 13, Odette, what supplements, if any, have you used to help restore the damage done by long-term use of alcohol? Go for it. My favorite one is sleep. <laughs> I love sleep so much. I track my sleep. I love my sleep. And I know that sleep is one of the ways that the body naturally restores itself and just makes up for a lot of the damage that was done. So sleep a lot, get your rest. I also am a firm believer in vitamins. I think we live in a world where not everyone has access to all of the vitamins and minerals that we need on a given day to thrive. So getting a little help with vitamins is, I think, a great idea. Lots of water and food. You know, a lot of the times we neglected our nutrition when we were drinking. So just going back to those simple things that our bodies thrive on, you know, good food, good sleep, good rest, good water, and some time out in the sun, some vitamin D. What about you, Paul? Yeah, I'm a firm believer that we already possess the tools necessary to heal. If we take a couple common sense things into account, number one is sleep, um, getting outside in nature. I love getting outside with my shoes off. That's why walking on the beach without shoes feels so good. There's a lot of science behind that. We're supposed to be connected to the earth. Uh, I like lemon in my water. I like tea. I like cocoa water, right? And I have done supplements, but right now I'm not taking any. Uh, I'm a firm believer if you're hitting those, get good sleep, get good rest. I mean, it's kind of like basics. Like if you're tired, take a nap. Um, if you're tired at night, go to bed. Make sure you're drinking a lot of water, uh, things like that. Yeah. Okay, next question. Odette, here we go. Number 14, we're cruising here. All right, one thing I would like to hear from you and or Paul is your spiritual journey as you got sober and how and how you find your higher being. I want to go first on that one. Here we go. As I mentioned earlier, spirituality wasn't really a thing in my journey. And about three and a half years in, um, I was pulled in that direction. And so much so, I was almost grasping. I was seeking for answers of like, what the hell is happening? And I, April, I think April 14th was a date that I journaled about. And I met with an astrologist a couple months after that date. She looks at my chart. She's like, whoa, Paul, you're in a lot of change right now. And in fact, it started on April 14th. It's like, oh my gosh. All right. So there's something going on there. Right. And, and I don't have a name for it. It's a he, is it a she? Um, I don't know. Right. But I can, I can tell unequivocally I've had too many life synergies, too many breadcrumbs of life showing up that there's something beautiful at play. And, you know, we all struggle with control. We do. But those in the addiction field, it's like an added layer of control that we struggle with. And it's recognizing now that you need the mystery. You need the magic. You don't need to know it all. And that's that's the beauty of life. Because if you did have all the answers and if you knew everything and it was so rigid and so structured, it would get boring really fast. That's 100% true. And, and Paul, I feel like you and I have somewhat similar spiritual journeys where it's more on the spiritual path versus the religious path. I feel like you and I don't really feel any resistance towards religion, but we kind of lean on more on spiritual journeys and understanding that we are all connected and we are all part of something much bigger than ourselves. And it's weird. I feel like you said in the last answer to the question about not thinking about alcohol, that time is the healer of all things. And I also think that time is interesting because time has its own timeline. So I feel like this whole part of our journey, which is about spirituality and higher power, whatever you want to call it, is kind of on its own path. Like things will be presented to you when you're ready. Someone, I think that if I would have gotten that book from Eckhart Tolle that rocked my world three years early, it wouldn't have had the same impact, you know, and that landed on my lap, I think, at the exact right time that I needed it. So stay curious and be patient. I don't think it's something you can force. I think it's already rigged in your favor, as we already always say as well. So just stay curious. Hang on, Odette. I'm, I'm writing some notes here. Hang on, hang on. Time has its own time lot. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Seriously. Value bomb by Odette. Oh. All right, you're up. Number 15. Number 15. How do you distance yourself from perfectionism? Great question. Hard question. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, Odette, read that question one more time. How do you distance yourself? How do you? How, wait. How, how do you, Sorry, I thought I was going to. 
one more time. How do you? I'll read it. How do you? How? Sorry. Well, how do you? Number. Fine. You read it. You read it, Pablo. How? How do you? All right. You're going to see what I'm trying to do here. How do you distance yourself from perfectionism? I think we just tried to do that. Is in when we were going to record this interview. It was there was this rigid structure in my mind was like, all right, we're going to alternate what questions we read. You're going to write your bullet points in blue. My bullet points will be in violet. And, and then we're and we're going to have a stopwatch. We're going to we're going to talk for 45 seconds to a minute each. And then Odette was the one that was like, well, like, let's scale back a little bit there, Paul. I'm like, you know what, Odette? Not. And I was like, you know what? I think she's right on that one. So how do you distance yourself from perfectionism? distance yourself from addiction you've got to recognize with awareness that it's there that's it that's all you need to do and that's what i've been doing in my life recognizing that it's there and i appreciate you you know you are one of the people in my life that i can kind of gut check a little bit sometimes i think there's a lot of value in those types of relationships and friendships and i need that sometimes i need someone to be that for me to where i'm like hey odette you know like you're being a little rigid And perfectionism is deeply rooted in control as well. And, and I'm a recovering control freak. So just loosening my grip on things that are outside of my control helps me loosen my grip on perfection. So it works with control as well. It's a daily practice. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Number 16. How can I help a loved one get on the AF journey? That means alcohol free. Two, without using too many of my own personal experiences and also without falling off myself. Go for it, Odette. This reminds me of question number one. You know, it, it's really hard, especially when you care. You said it's a loved one. It's really hard, but I think that in staying on the course yourself and not being codependent, not enmeshing yourself to that person will ultimately help both parties. So it may seem counterintuitive because you think there must be something I can do to help and you're trying to do all of the things and then you just add resistance. In adding least to resistance, you will clear the path for both. It is completely counterintuitive and hard, but I highly recommend you just stay the course on yourself and hold space for your loved one. Paul? Yeah, this piggybacks off question number two. And I'm a big fan of Ludacris, and he's got a new song called S-O-T-L with Lil Wayne, and he's got a great line in there. He says, as Gandhi says, you want to be the change that you want to see, right? And so the best absolute way to help anybody on their, their AF journey is to be the change that you want to see, um, and, and that's it. Energetically, they will see what's going on, and they will follow your footprint in consciousness and make, uh, and make the same decision. And without falling off yourself, ooh, well, that's just life. Sometimes we crash and burn hard in life. That's just part of it. That's how we grow again. That's how we once again find those moments of thriving when we previously weren't thriving. So that's okay too. It's all part of it. All right, next question. Siguiente pregunta. Next question in Spanish. How did the transition between hosts come about? Did Paul ask Odette or did Odette send out an unconscious signal? Was there a specific sign in the universe to make this event happen? Pablo. Well, I like this. Siguiente pregunta. Okay. I was in Oaxaca, Mexico when the world seemed to unravel, right? Um, this from COVID. This was last March. And I find it ironic with the, with the timing. Odette and I's path, we, we've had some really spiritual conversations. She's from Guadalajara. And um, I dated a girl from Guadalajara, I think when I was 24 and 25. And I went to pick up this girlfriend of mine in Guadalajara, Mexico, who was a teacher at an at a English-Spanish school. And I walked into the classroom, and we think Odette was in that classroom because Odette attended that school at the same time where my ex-girlfriend was teaching. So I don't know. We've had some fun We've had some fun conversations about that, how we're supposed to be working together in some capacity in this life. And um, we've done some challenging things together. Number one is this podcast transition. It's just, we, we chatted about it. There was like one small hiccup and there I would previously would have thought there'd be a bunch of them. Um, and Odette has been so graceful with this and she's been awesome. And it's been, it was enjoyable, the handoff. Um, yeah, I was in Oaxaca, Mexico and it just, the idea just came. I said, Oh my gosh, like I, I, I need to take a break. I knew that, but I didn't quite have the idea of somebody taking over. Right. And that could be ego. That could be control. I don't know, but it wasn't there. But I was walking in Oaxaca, Mexico, and the idea just showed up. And I remembered I pulled out my phone immediately. It was like, Odette, we got a chat. We had a really good conversation about the idea. 
Um, and that's how it went. So did, did I get something wrong in there? Did I, we have sixty to 70,000 thoughts per day and most of them are wrong. Did I, did I fudge something there? No, that's how it happened. And, and, and I immediately said yes because I just knew I wanted to do it. I knew nothing about audio or sound and Paul's had to teach me a lot. But it was a, an immediate yes that just came from my heart. And it, I, I'm still very grateful and I'm glad that I've been able to help Pablo take a break and pursue other things. So it's been going much smoother than either of us would have thought. I'm extremely grateful of how things have kind of unfolded. Thank you all listeners for supporting the transition as well. All right. Yeah, thank you for supporting us. Yeah. Perfectionism. Perfectionism. Okay, you're next. You're next. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number 18. What is Paul's biggest takeaway since stepping away from podcast? Is what is Odette's biggest takeaway so far being the host of the podcast? I'll go first on this one. We all suck. While the listeners who are listening to this right now, we all suck at asking for help and accepting the help. So that, that was a big one, right? I needed help at that moment. I was struggling with some things and I needed a break and I accepted the help. I said, Odette, would you? And I asked for help. Hey, Odette, would you mind hosting the podcast? You said yes. And packed in there were, were hundreds of smaller lessons and, and opportunities for growth. So thank you. That's been my biggest takeaway is accepting the help. Yeah. And my biggest takeaway from hosting so far is that we all, not only are we all connected, but we all need each other. You know, I was talking to someone yesterday that I interview, he's also a cafe, I remember, and I needed him yesterday, it was my turn to interview him. And I needed that interview as much as he needed it, or maybe more, you know, I've been having a really hard week, a really stressful week, I have my kind of depression dips that I've already mentioned, even on this one episode that we're recording right now. And I just didn't, I didn't even want to record an interview. I was like, no, no, but I, I'm going to show up. And after that one hour spent with that someone, I felt so much better. And if you look at that from the outside, you think that I was the one helping that person, but that's not how this works at all. We're all showing up for each other and we need each other more than ever, whether or not you're on day one or day 1000, you can learn and benefit from having relationships with everybody else. And yeah, that's what I've discovered. You know, we learn from each other and we lean on each other. Even when you think the roles are already pre-established, sometimes that's not the way that it is. Okay, next question. Here we go. Do you have any advice on when is a good time and how to be open and out about your sobriety with employers and old friends, strangers, etc.? I struggle with thinking it's none of my employer's business because it doesn't affect the job I do. And I don't want to deal with the conversation that comes with telling them, but then find myself avoiding the truth about it and feeling shitty later. Huh. You're up, Odette. We talk about burning the ships a lot, right? And burning the ships in Recovery Elevator, we refer to like, when are you going to talk about it? When are you going to talk about it to your friends, to your coworkers? When are you going to throw up a Facebook post that said, I said goodbye, I said adios to alcohol? And I think that this question, a part of the answer to this question is just self and radical honesty. You know, what is your style? What is your personality? I went out and burned the ships and then I went and had a drink 30 days later. I burned the ships with everybody and then I still went and drank. You know, so what are you trying to accomplish with these conversations? And who are you? What is true and authentic to yourself? For some people, that means maybe telling one or two people at a time. For some people, that means maybe sending out an email to their boss. You know, just kind of look at yourself and I do feel like we get wrapped up in like, you need to do this. You need to tell X amount of people. You need to, you know, take it at your own pace, I guess is the, the answer that I'm trying to say. Take it at your own pace, but also challenge yourself a little bit outside of your comfort zone and know that in the end, you're not doing it for any of these people when you're saying, I don't owe them an explanation. Yes, we don't owe explanations to anybody, but you're doing it for yourself. So just keep that in mind. You're doing it for your accountability, for your mental peace, so that you don't feel shitty later, as you mentioned here. So do it for the right reasons. Do it when you feel ready and push the envelope a little bit. What do you say, Paul? Yeah, we often disassociate ourselves from nature. We are disconnected in that regard, but we are nature. And I'm going to make an analogy here. Is It's similar to like a hummingbird that goes to a hummingbird feeder and finds nutrients and the sweet nectar that entails there, right? And it keeps coming back. 
So we learn when, when there's a positive reinforcement that something works, we'll go back to it. And guys, yeah, we call it burning the ships. And like Odette said, I do recognize this can be challenging. And I, and I recommend you go at your own pace with this because you can, you can shock the comfort zone and go, go a little too far at times in this regard. But I have burned heaps of ships. I have burned shit tons of ships, listeners. And let me tell you right now, um, there was a time when uh, Ari wasn't my only job. I was doing other things. And there were some very nervous ship burning experiences there. And every single time it worked in my favor. And not just a little bit, but a lot. And so every time there's an opportunity right now to burn the ship, I'm like that hummingbird that's like, yes, I'm going to fly up and just burn it. I'll tell it because I know that when I am vulnerable, it almost gives the other person an entry point to opening up as well. I do it in taxis and Ubers and airplanes and everywhere when there's an opportunity, right? It's like, hey, my name's Paul. I don't drink. It's the, but when there's that option to throw it out, I always do because it always opens up the door for, for deeper connection. Love that. Thanks for your answer, Pablo. Am I next? Yes, I think I'm next. Yeah. Yeah. Question number 20, numero 20. When has your sobriety been tested the most and what did you do? What happened? Go for it. Mm, okay. This is, this is a great compliment to 19 about burning the ships, right? Uh, I think about six months away from alcohol, I was setting up credit card processors for an arcade that I had. And I was on the phone with tech support and I was in this field in, in Bozeman, Montana, and I was having a meltdown, right? I was really struggling. I think the podcast was on episode six, seven or eight, right? In the initial days. And the thought came in, in my mind. I was like, well, shit, it's only six episodes. Fuck this. Um, I'm drinking. But what I did is on the phone, and this was challenging, right? I told the gal on the phone that I, I said, hey, look, I, I recently quit drinking. And this is, this is challenging. And I'm wanting to drink right now. This is a, I, I need help. And I told the support staff person this on the phone and they, they go, hold on a second, Mr. Churchill. They put me on hold. And I, I, I can only, only imagine the conversation that they had behind the scenes because what happened after that, I got the manager. I got the manager's manager. I got the tech, the banker. Everybody rallied the troops. Everybody came to support some guy named Paul in Montana that was about to drink over not being able to set up the credit card processor. And it was incredible. And again, that's an example, 312 of how burning the ships works in my favor. Yeah, it was challenging, made it past it because I opened up about it. How about you, Odette? I love that story. I didn't know that one. Thanks for sharing. That's that's awesome. Little things like that make me have faith in humanity. <laughs> Kindness is alive. Yeah. I yeah. think, and I and I do get messages about this, so I, I, I want to double click it and just say that I feel like this happens to me often with parenting, you know, I heard it for the first time with Dak Shepard. He said that a lot of people who want a family, they think that the family is what's going to keep them sober, right? You know, when I, when I have a kid, that's when I'm going to get my shit together. They'll be my greatest motivation. And then the kid comes and they are your biggest trigger. Like that is just the reality of things. And I remember hearing that and was like, wow, it's so true because... It's so unknown and there's so many things you want to control, but you can't. And, you know, at least with kids that are the age of my kids, this is the toddler stage. You know, there's potty training. There's, hey, mom, look at my truck for the hundredth time of the day to the point where I'm like, okay, Max, I don't want to look at your truck anymore, dude. Yeah, it's cool, but come on. You know, like it is hard. So I think parenting really tests my sobriety a lot. And I'm not scared to speak up about it. I feel like I get a lot of messages saying, thank you so much for saying it. It doesn't obviously mean that we don't love our kids. I love my kids to death, but I think it is so hard and so challenging. And that's why I think the mommy culture has such an advantage, you know, because it is hard. Days with these kids are really hard. And, and now we're made believe that like we need a reward or a release at the end of the day and that that reward should be alcohol. So there's a reason why that business is going well is because it's true, right? So what I do is acknowledge it. You know, I'll, I'll say, you know, I really would like a drink right now. Like I will say it out loud instead of hiding it and community, even with parents. I think you need to have community when you are a parent because only parents get it and it is very triggering so that's what i do i just talk about it when it happens because they are very hard parenting days yeah 
Nice. We got four questions left, listeners. Actually, five. Odette, tell me more about Max's truck. I'm curious. Like, what color is it? What kind of truck is it? Fire engine type truck? Four-wheel Jeep truck? What we got? Which one of the 100 trucks do you want me to describe? Because this is a day in the life. I'm like, Max, you want to get this one? I feel like we already have that one in like seven different colors. Nope, but this one has this tire that rotates different, mom. Don't you see? Like, you should know the difference. You guys would be buddies. I've always said that, and I, I agree. There are a lot of trucks. I'll send you a photo and maybe post the trucks next to the sweater photo when we do our Instagram post. <laughs> uh, Max sounds like a cool cat. Love to kick it with that guy one day. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll field this next one. Number 21, what do you think of prescription meds for during recovery? And this would be like naltrexone or an abuse. So naltrexone, uh, okay, short term, I'm going to say green light. Uh, green light in the short term. Naltrexone is an opioid antagonist blocker Right. And, and these are commonly prescribed in the Scandinavia region. This is called the Sinclair method and only prescribed about three percent of the time in America. And the opioid blocker, what it does is when you drink a beer or whatever, you don't get the same euphoric effects. But, you know, what happens if you don't take the medicine? Uh, and then it also it's working on the dopamine system in the brain. It also affects other things like they say you like to play guitar. What happens when you pick up the guitar? You don't quite experience the joy in the same way. But yeah, if it helps you in the short term, get off alcohol, green light. There has been some good anecdotal and scientific evidence around those. And abuse is the is the pill that when you drink, the, your body has a violent reaction. Right. Again, in the short term, that might work. But you're departing from alcohol off the stance or, or the focal point of fear. Right. If I drink something, something bad will happen. That's OK in the short term. But you want to ditch the booze from love for the opportunity of you know, the, the horizons in front of you opposed to, oh, I'm going to throw up when I drink. All right. Uh, number 22. What have you learned the most about recovery from doing the podcasts? And what is the most common similarity you found after all the interviews other than we all have a desire to stop drinking? Of course. Odette, you're up. I like this question. And you threw up a video that is related to my answer. You asked our Instagram audience if they believed in moderation or if it's worked for them. And I feel like episode ap after episode is that people who do want to stop drinking and feel like they have a problem, moderation doesn't work. That is definitely a common denominator. Moderation doesn't work. It works until it doesn't. There have been all of these rules tried by all of the people who've been courageous enough to come onto the show and they just come to the acceptance that moderation doesn't do the trick. And the other thing I've noticed is that we're all just looking for the same thing. You know, we're listening to the podcast to quit drinking and to get support with our journey, but we all just want love and acceptance. We're all on the same path, not just with quitting, but with that as well. We all just want love. Solid. Okay. I've got five things here. The similarities is we've all had a lot of painful present moments. We've all experienced a lot of pain. That's trauma with a capital T, trauma with a little t. And sometimes the trauma is what didn't happen, love and connection in childhood. Number two is addictions with something similar we have is something out of something in our lives is really out of balance, not just a little bit, but something, a part of our life is really out of balance. And that's what the alcohol is screaming for attention to fix. Number three is we are so good. We are all such good hearted people. And number four is, is there's a big part of us unconsciously that doesn't want to quit drinking. And that took me a while to pick up on that, like three, three or four years, right? I want to quit drinking so bad, but the unconscious with guides, most of our actions and behaviors actually says, uh-uh, it's too far out of our comfort zone. How are we going to cope? And number five is, is, is the fear component. Uh, we all need to eventually address the fear, not say get rid of it, but we need to overcome it. Thank you. Next one. Do you want to ask it? Because it's for me. Oh, yeah. This is clearly for you because <laughs> I have a, a kiddo in a, in a standard poodle format named Ben. Okay. Number 23, Odette. How do I break out of the cycle of drinking with four young kids? Ooh, I'm excited to hear this answer too. Yeah, listeners, the woman who emailed me this, it was a long email and she, she let me know that she's really busy and... I have to be very wary of advice to other busy moms because I know what it is, but I know what it is to have two kids, not four kids. So bear with me because I also don't completely understand what having four children is, which is two more than what I have that I can barely keep up with on any given day. So our days are busy and there's only 24 hours in a day, but you have to make time for yourself. I know in the email, it was mentioned that there's no time, 
carve out some time. It doesn't have to be a lot of the time. But if you make yourself a priority, so will your kids when it's their time. That has been my biggest reminder and motivator. You know, my kids will become me. My daughter will become me. So if my daughter sees that I'm taking care of myself, then I can only hope that she will take care of herself. She's not going to be exempt of pain and failure, but I can only hope that she knows like, okay, I need to find time in a day to take care of myself. I can't not put the oxygen mask on first, which is back to what you said, Paul. Even with four kids, you have to put on that mask on yourself. As hard as it is, ask for help. I do think it takes a village to raise children. Ask for help. Email me if you want. Ask for anybody to help. Sometimes it's that. It's that we don't ask for the help and then we don't get what we need and then we become resentful and it becomes this cycle. But I promise you that if you model that behavior in yourself, you're just going to give to your kids something that you couldn't give to them if you didn't take care of yourself. So I'm here for you, rooting for you, and I know you can do it. Uh, four kids, that's a lot of trucks. That That is a lot of trucks. Guys, we've gotten to the last question. This has been fun. Pablo, are you having fun? I'm having a good time. And this one's a a wordy one. So I'm going to let you read it. All right. Well, there we go. I guess here's my test against perfectionism. We're lucky we have Ty to edit us out when we we need to. Shout out to Ty. All right. Here we go. What's up, Ty? What's up? Last question says, is it possible to get addicted to feelings? I wonder why I want to harm my body through drinking. I grew up with trauma and I'm trying to deal with that today, but I'm wondering if somewhere I became addicted to feelings of sadness, loneliness, and shame. So that's what makes it difficult to break the cycle of addiction because on a deeper level, I'm still looking for those emotions because I've lived with them for so long. Paul, this is a loaded question. I know you've talked about it. Can you speak more on like, is she, is this person possibly addicted to feelings? She's on to something on the question. Can you see that? Ooh, yeah. Odette, there's a reason why we put this question last. You nailed it. Okay. So <laughs> quitting drinking is the one domino that can, that, can, that can knock all the other dominoes down in our life. However, there's one even bigger domino that if we address that first, then we don't even need to uh, tackle the drinking thing. But when drinking alcohol is involved in our life, we can't address the thinking, right? So eventually, you know, once we ditch the booze, we're going to come front and center, pull up the chair and say, oh, what's up, thinking mind? What's going on? You've been going crazy lately. What's happening? Okay. And so absolutely, it's not like you're addicted to those specific feelings. You're addicted to the known. You're addicted to who you currently are. It's those chemicals, those algorithms in the body that reinforce the identity of who you are. It's It's called the ego, right? Um, and when we quit drinking, it's recognize the ego. And we can't completely annihilate the ego, right? But we deprioritize it. It's stepping away from those thoughts. So this is a lot of Joe Dispenza's work and why I've and found so much traction with him lately it is absolutely it's questioning those sixty to 70,000 thoughts per day that we have and say, wait a second, I'm feeling depressed. Why am I feeling depressed? Should I be feeling depressed? Because we might, we might be telling us a story that, yes, we have every reason in the world to feel depressed and anxious and those things, but the story might be wrong. We, we might not have it correct. And that's okay, but it's, it's the known, right? It's the brain that only functions in the known. And that's why when we make the decision to quit drinking, yeah, it feels so good, but only a matter of time, it's the knowns, the unconscious self is going to create those chemicals to pull you back into the known. I'm serious. There's science that shows this. You make the decision to quit drinking, fantastic, but get ready for the body to try to anchor you back into the old self. And that's okay. It's part of the process. It's recognizing that and keep pushing forward. Great answer and great, brave question you know that's not easy to ask that or to admit that that's possibly happening in your life i've been talking a little bit more about this on the show our normal needs to become a new normal not just in our daily lives and our habits and how we move in our world but internally there needs to be a new normal a new normal emotions a new a new normal so it's not just quitting drinking so thank you paul we did it we did our first bonus q a episode 
Yeah, we did. And no, Dad, I'm gonna take a page out of your book. The, your episode that came out this past Monday, you you were vulnerable about some, about some things, and listeners got to know you a little bit better. Question 24, listener. This is something that I've I've been challenging: is the struggle. There, there's like a voice inside that that says life is supposed to be hard. And and sure, I've worked hard at things, and and life isn't easy at times. But there's a voice that's like everything has to be really hard. I mean, this is gonna be like sending an email, logging in to something. Anything that needs to get done, matter moving matter, it's got to be a challenge and it doesn't have to be right. And that's something with this, like that's the known. I've always had to struggle <laughs> to do things. And that's me pushing past this and say, wait a second, it doesn't have to be this hard. The universe can work for me, work with me and I can ask for help. So I love that question on that level because there was part of me that, that was addicted to that as well as that challenge of just this has got to be so hard. Well, well, does it? You know, there's that other side of it that um, that I'm exploring as well. So I love this question. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Paul. I know that uh, our golden rule number 22 has been at the forefront of your life in the last couple of years. And you've been exploring that just moving in a lighter way throughout your days. And I think you're doing a great job. So nice job to both of us. <laughs> yeah, nice job to both of us. And listeners, this was this was challenging, right? Like while you're reading the question, you're thinking, or you know, while you're answering the question, you're thinking about what you're going to do. You're thinking, oh, am I reading it next? This was hard. This was like cognitively taxing, but it was really fun. And again, what a cool experience to to answer questions from listeners on a podcast. Well, I want to thank you guys, the listeners, for giving this opportunity for us to connect. Had a great time with you, Odette, and for us to connect with the audience because it's the teacher and the student that make the teaching. You need both of them. Both of them have to be there. And this is like a oneness in the world of duality. You have to have both of us, have us and those who are quitting drinking for this to even take place. You have to have the black to have the white. You have to have the sound to have the silence. You have to have the four walls to have the space. There's the two things in this world of duality, but it's all lead, it all leads to oneness. So holy cow, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Odette, for doing this. This was a lot of fun. And thank you, listeners. Like Paul said, there is no podcast with you without you guys and we're all a part of this big movement. And I keep calling it movement from the first time that Paul ever interviewed me. This is a movement and each and every one of you are a part of it. So thank you. Thank you so much. And maybe we'll do it again, Pablo. We'll see. I'd hope so. Yeah. Depends on if the listeners want to want to submit more answers or questions and we'll rock it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the Recovery Elevator podcast, Odette. Thank you for coming on. Enjoy Hawaii. I know you're chilling by la playa so enjoy it say hi to the whales and we'll talk soon will do all right adios Adi adios thank you, so much. Thank you.